Noahic, first Noahic covenant. Perhaps we could, uh, I could talk about the uh, mention that it, you know, what I interpreted there was not universally understood that way. However, another thing to point out is the way you read Genesis 6.18, but I will confirm my covenant with you, singular, Noah, and you shall enter the ark. You see, the way we're understanding that is the great benefit that is conveyed by confirming or conveying to him the benefits of this covenant consists of that in particular in entering the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. But that really is what is being conveyed here, is the benefit is surviving the flood at this stage. But I don't want to so separate Genesis 6 and the uh, second confirmation of covenant with uh, Noah and his sons and all living creatures, by the way, animals as well, in chapter 9, that they, they really should be seen as uh, entirely separate benefits. The way, I, the way I understand this is Noah is a portrait to us of God's redemptive package with Christ, as it were, right here at the beginning of Revelation. I mean, in Genesis 6, you have God sketching out what he will do to fulfill that promise in Genesis 3.15. And by the righteous of one, the many will be delivered through judgment. But after the judgment recedes and the flood recedes with it, there is a new creation kind of imagery. The uh, seasons are restored and God promises uh, the seasons. It gives a command to Noah really based on the original command to Adam. This is Genesis 9.1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Notice, said to them, not just Noah now, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's a new humanity, as it were. It's a new creation. In Peter, he calls it the world that then was, and now the new world, you see. There's a new creation imagery. And, and God is sketching out for us, really, what he has in mind for all of human history to follow. These things are, are great uh, events in history and he's using these people and their history to teach them about what he has planned in Christ Jesus because Christ is the center of our uh, whole covenant of grace but then we turn to after the flood we have this uh, reinstitution of the creation ordinances we have a further stipulation of God in chapter 9 verse 6 about capital punishment for those who murder. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So you have again a reiteration of the creation mandate to Noah as a uh, head of a new family. Then in verse 8, Genesis 9, verse 8, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, now behold, I myself do establish. Now that's the same word we looked at in Genesis 6.18. Do confirm or implement my covenant with you. Now in this place, the word you there is plural. So he's reiterating this. He's bringing in, as it were, a new imp implementation of covenant here. You see, he'd already done it in 6 and it had that limit of delivering through flood, now he's implementing a new phase. And I don't think you should separate these entirely, but they are distinct and distinguishable. Now behold, I myself do confirm or implement my covenant with you, plural, and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I confirm my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there uh, again be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the benefit conveyed now. 
You see, here is, I, I, I convey the benefits of this covenant to you. Here is what it consists of. Here is the blessing that I promise you. I won't destroy the earth through flood. Of course, he doesn't promise to dis- not to destroy it in some other way. Then in verse 12, God issues a sign of this covenant. There is, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. Now notice with this sign, it's not something that man or beast does. It's something that God does. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You see, earlier he'd made this, implemented this covenant with, with Noah, but now with the whole earth. And this sign is granted to them. Now, in, you may want to just copy this down. In Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, God doesn't use the word oath here, but this shows again how closely tied oath is with covenant. Because here in Genesis 9, he uses the term this is my covenant and the sign of the covenant. But here's what we read in Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. For this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should, should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. So in interpreting the Noahic uh, covenant here, he says, this is like the covenant of peace that I make with you as I swore to preserve the earth from flood judgment so my covenant of peace will not be removed from you. And I would suggest that what we see in Genesis 9 really is, again, a picture of what God will do in the future. Now, he does implement this now in creation. I'm not denying that. Now, get this straight. Uh, But that he's, in, in presenting what he's going to do now after the flood, in certain terms, he's pointing ahead to the covenant of peace that he will make in eternity when all of creation will be restored after the final judgment and there will be nothing but peace. Then there will be God's covenant of peace resting upon all of creation eternally. This, of course, is what all of creation groans for in Romans 8, is for that restoration and that promise. And so God here is, in essence, giving a promise for this earth which is also oriented to the future in the final peace and deliverance through the last judgment. So you see, God has sketched out for us his whole program for history and redemption in this initial few chapters of Genesis. This is what he's going to bring about. And we start, now he's going to fill that picture out even further. But notice throughout, in in both of these places, and this is why I say it is an application of the covenant of grace. It is, in this sense, it's a covenant of grace applied in this world, but it's pointing ahead to the righteousness according to faith. But notice in here, there's no demand upon man to fulfill the covenant and to earn the reward. It's, it's all promise on God's side, particularly here in chapter 9. There's no demand. There are stipulations for covenant allegiance for all mankind uh, to, to fulfill the creation mandate and capital punishment for murder. But that's not to fulfill the covenant requirements. In this case, this covenant requirements is fulfilled by God. He promises. He sets a sign for himself. We don't perform that sign. We simply look at it and recall the oath of God. So that's all I have on that. Is there any questions? Save them all till four o'clock. No, just kidding. Because I'd like to move on to uh, 
And by the way, this business on uh, confirming the covenant and, and the use of that term, I have a number of commentators of a variety of stripes who all agree on that. Let me just read one of them. This is uh, Gordon Wenham. The phrase, confirm my covenant, is often held to be uh, P's, this is the source, he believes in source criticism, phrase for initiating a covenant, language synonymous with to cut a covenant. But this is not so. Whereas to cut describes the point of entry to a covenant, to confirm is used of ratifying pre-existing words, promises, threats, oaths, vows, as well as covenants. So it is to confirm pre-existing covenants. I'm going to turn now to, now that you've thoroughly been bludgeoned by my word study on that word, I'd like to turn now to to Genesis 15. Abraham. When you read the scriptures through the lens of covenant theology, you're always asking, what is God revealing? Specifically, what is God revealing to advance that promise made in Genesis 3.15? How is he going to fulfill that promise? And the people of God, I believe, in the Old Testament were always asking that question and wondering and looking for that promise. They give hints of this, this hope that they have in some of their expressions. And then God adds more and more until Christ fully comes. But, but one of the major landmarks that he puts in Scripture is, of course, his covenant with Abraham. Now, we won't deal with the whole Abrahamic revelation, of course. There are so many aspects of it. But really, just this setting up of the covenant with Abraham. Let me just sketch out for you uh, the main characteristics of this covenant And then we'll look at the main text in particular, Genesis 15 and then 17. First, the character of the covenant with Abraham was promissory. It looked forward forward for fulfillment. It was a promise particularly for the seed and for a future inheritance. And it moves from the individual, Abraham, to administration of the covenant bond to his heirs, in chapter 17. Initially, the covenant is cut with Abram alone, but it has implications for his seed. And then in 17, when the covenant sign is issued, circumcision, the seed and his descendants are brought into the benefits of this covenant. And that's an important point that we'll make later on as well. Secondly, this is a covenant of grace. In chapter 15 of Genesis, God initiates the covenant making. He calls Abram out of his grace. Abram believes God is reckoned to him as righteousness. And then God himself takes upon himself the obligation to fulfill his word. He imposes no obligation on Abram in order for the promises to be fulfilled. This is what it means for the covenant of grace, again. The obligate, there, there are obligations placed upon us in the covenant of grace. One particular obligation, and that is a living faith. But that itself, even that is a gift of God. That's what we're going to find later, of course, but we'll find it here as well. But you see, that obligation is not the underlying righteousness. The righteousness is of God. He provides the righteousness and it's granted to us as a gift. So Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Three, and that's what it means to be a covenant of grace. Three, the condition is expressed in observance of the sacrament, which itself is a means of grace. So the sacrament added in chapter 17 is a sacrament of faith, to nourish faith and to express it. It is a condition of the covenant, but it's a condition of expressing faith. And this is the same way we will describe baptism. When you baptize, it must be an act of faith. It is not a work that deserves reward from God. That's the point. 
It is expressing faith in another, particularly in Christ. And for Abram, the sign of circumcision pointed ahead to his seed who would inherit the promise. We saw from Galatians 3.15 and following that seed is Christ as time moved on. Four, this is specifically a Christological uh, covenant. You see that in the seed, and that's the point we just made, Galatians 3.16, the seed is Christ, Paul says. And then finally, the promissory elements of this covenant are consummated in the new covenant. There are direct ties made in the New Testament between the Abrahamic covenant and the coming of Christ and the new covenant. Direct ties. And this, of course, is fundamental to covenant theology and, again, one of those elements that distinguishes us so clearly from uh, our dispensationalist uh, friends. For example, and we've already seen Galatians 3, which we'll probably revisit if we have time, but read also in Luke 1, this is the uh, Zacharias' prophecy, the, the father of John the Baptist. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Zacharias saw the coming of Christ through the forerunner, John the Baptist, his son. And he, it says in Luke, 2, Luke 1, 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So this is a, a spirit-inspired, as in all scripture, of course, but this is a prophetic interpretation of the events of his day. And Zechariah, through the Spirit, is interpreting what's happening in his day is a fulfillment of, of the holy covenant and oath God swore to Abraham. So there's a direct line being drawn between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant fulfillment. And it's very important to see, particularly when we talk about baptism as carrying forward and really just continuing what, cir what circumcision meant in the Abrahamic covenant. This direct line is, is really the underpinning of our understanding of baptism, particularly of infants, as carrying forward the covenant sign and seal that circumcision was. Partly because circumcision is interpreted as a covenant sign and seal of the righteousness of faith, not just a ceremony. It's a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith that Abraham had and we also participate in who believe in Christ. So those are the, the, the characteristics of this covenant to uh, focus upon. Now we'll look at the text with those in mind. Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, I'm just going to summarize most of the uh, passages and then give you a few cross-references here. In Genesis 15, 1, after this, the word of the Lord... I'm reading the NIV now. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. How does that strike you, covenant thinkers? I am your God. I am your reward. What a wonderful expression of that covenant bond. I am your shield. I defend you. I am your God. You can rely upon me to protect you but I am your reward. What is the reward of your faith, Abram? It's to possess God, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Now verse 2. You can see why you know, our, our catechism is just thoroughly infused with biblical images and ideas and is expressing biblical truth here. Now Genesis 15, 2. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can I... What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. 
and then Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. There's the gospel. Paul says this is what this is what makes us seed of Abram. We believe along with believing Abram and are justified by faith. Here's justification by faith in its clearest expression picked up throughout the scripture as the, the, the quintessence of what it means to participate in the covenant of grace, to have uh, an alien righteousness put to our account as with believing Abram. And he simply believed that promise of the seed, so shall your offspring be. It doesn't, it's not really directly here aligned with the land promise, is it? It focuses specifically on the seed, the descendants of Abraham, and of course, the main descendant is Christ. Genesis 15, 7. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Now, Abram wants a sign. He wants God to enter into uh, a, a sign of this. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon, etc. And as you know, Abram brought these things to the Lord. He cut them in half. Uh, I think verse 11 is a very interesting verse, isn't it? Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now, why is that verse in Scripture? There'll be a quiz after today's lesson, so you'll have a chance to see if you get it right. Verse 12, which usually means the speaker doesn't know himself. And <laughs> it's, it's a trick I learned being a professor, you know. Look wise and, and look as if you know the answer and say, well, you figure it out and tell me and I'll tell you if you're right or not. <laughs> you learn that very quickly, <laughs> dealing with, with students more brilliant than yourself. <laughs> Genesis 15:12. Well, my, my opinion is birds of prey, you know, are a sign of curse in the, in the covenant curse in the scripture. So your carcasses will fall on the wayside and the birds will devour you. It's a standard curse in the scripture. And doesn't the Abrahamic covenant drive away the curse? Now, maybe that's being too allegorical. It, it quite possibly is, but it's, it is interesting this verse is here in the scripture. Okay. Genesis 15:12. Then Abram fell into a deep sleep. Now verse 13. God makes his oath promise. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. So this is simply a, a prophecy of what will happen. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there's the, just a prophecy of the future. Now in verse 17. Then the sun had set and darkness had fallen. A smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenazites, Cadmonites, etc. And God uh, confirms this promise, but particularly at the very heart of this promise is to your seed, the one issuing from your own body. So that God confirms his uh, covenant promise with a a self-malediction oath. Self-malediction means God promises that if he fails to keep his covenant, promise his oath, he himself will be cut in two like these animals. Now, Abram knew this. This was commonly practiced in his day. A place you can look to is Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 20. I'm turning there now, and then I'll get your question. Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me when they cut the the calf in two and passed between its parts. You see, God is going to exact judgment 
upon those who took upon themselves the curse of the covenant if they broke it. If I break this covenant, may I be split into like this calf. That's what this ceremony is all about. But in Genesis 15, God passes through the pieces, not Abram. That's what makes it the covenant of grace. He is confirming he will keep his word. Now in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, why does God do this to himself? And he says, for only one reason. God wasn't about to forget, and God can't die. But because he can swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, it's not exactly this passage, it's elsewhere, but it's the same principle. God, by giving his word and simply stating it, states it on oath. When God speaks, it is, it is backed by his person. He cannot lie. Therefore, everything he says must be true. But he adds this oath for Abram's benefit. And that's what Hebrews says. Wishing to give the heirs of the promise assurance, he added an oath for their sakes. And it's simply a condescension of, of kindness on God's part to do this for Abram, and thereby to us, to give us assurance that we too can be assured of God's uh, fixed determination to do this. And again, a fixed determination is another way to talk about some aspect of covenant. Now you had a question. I'm sorry to delay you. Is this that Abraham believes God and accepted him as righteousness? Yes. It almost seems like right away in verse 8, it almost seems like he's doubting and he wants proof. I don't know. I hadn't looked at it in that light. Anybody else have any insights on that? The question is, is Abram doubting God in verse 8? I don't think he is. His request for a sign is motivated by faith. That's a good answer. <laughs> now, what that means is, is uh, up for grabs as well. Let me, let me think about that more and maybe talk to some of the wiser folk here. And, and uh, I don't want to give anything off the top of my head. I don't think it is an expression of faith. Paul talks about Abram in Romans 4 as not wavering in faith in faith. His faith didn't waver. So he, Paul reads this and doesn't find any wavering in, in Abram's faith, even though you know, at times there's a little chuckling going on when God says out of Sarah's body, well, Sarah chuckled, Abram chuckled. That's why they named Isaac Chuckle. Chuckles. <laughs> Laughter, you know, Isaac. Um, I also, in my opinion, that's when Jesus says, Abram saw my day and rejoiced. I almost think Jesus was tweaking Abram's nose. You know, laughter. That's when he rejoiced. He was happy about That's when he chuckled. But, you know, that's another thing. Uh, I don't think he's wavering faith, but he's, he's calling for God to confirm it with a sign. Now, why is that? Now, God, you know, one way to read it is God knows what he wants and provides that out of his kindness. And he does confirm it with his oath. Because the next verse is verse 9 when he initiates this oath sign. And maybe it's just to confirm. He wants a confirmation of it. He believes it, but he wants God to uh, confirm it with some sensible sign, perhaps. Some way that he can understand. So there is the covenant. And it was cut. It was cut like the animals were cut. But now when we turn to Genesis 17, we have further elements of covenant added. 
in particular, we have the covenant sign added. So turn to Genesis 17. Am I right? Do we have five minutes to do uh, chapter 17? Quarter tail? Okay, we have quarter tail. We have 20 minutes. That's a, that's a verse a minute, so that's a good, that's a good pace. All right. In Genesis 17, God issues the covenant sign. We read in verse 1, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Notice this, walk with God, walk before me, as a way of expressing covenant. And be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, here, this, this uh, word, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. It, this is not, again, a new covenant making. Like earlier in Genesis 6, this is a different aspect of covenant. It is confirming a covenant already in place. The covenant in place is in chapter 15. He doesn't say, I will cut a covenant with you. I will make a new covenant. But he uses the word to give a covenant. It's interesting. It's not the same word found in Genesis 6. It's a different word. It's natan, to give. I will issue my covenant between me and you. Now, how are we to understand that? I think it's pretty clear that what he's doing here is issuing the sign of the covenant and saying, I, can, I issue the covenant here. You see, later on, in verse 11, the sign of the covenant is mentioned. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And it is in itself the covenant. Look at verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep, every male among you shall be circumcised. You see, what he's saying is, I now will issue to you the sign of the covenant. That's what he says in verse 2. It's not a new covenant being initiated. That's the point. But rather, he's issuing the sign of the covenant, already initiated and entered into. In uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, in reviewing this covenant event, says that God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And he says, the covenant, not two covenants, but the covenant of circumcision. And so you really must read verse 17 as not a new covenant being made, but God confirming that covenant and issuing its sign. Because it's called, I hereby issue you the covenant, circumcision. That's how he describes it in 10 and 13. Otherwise, you see, there would be different stipulations, different kind of promises, perhaps, or blessings promised, and different threats involved, or whatever. And you really, you really uh, can't see that in this passage. There's really no new issues of the covenant here. It's simply confirming what God has already covenanted. So now we read further in verse, uh, verse 3 of Genesis 17.3. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish... Now, this is that same term found in Genesis 6:18. I will implement my covenant as an everlasting covenant, between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your seed after you. There it is. There's the, you know, the core of the covenant of grace. And it's, he's going to confirm this covenant with Abraham himself but also his seed after him so that the covenant line will be carried on throughout the generations. This covenant won't be forgotten there will always be beneficiaries of this covenant through the generations 
he won't skip over generations. There will always be a remnant who will uh, participate in the benefits of this covenant of grace. And the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. There's the covenant formula as well. Now verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, and by the way, from now on, every reference to Abram in the Hebrew Scriptures is Abraham. Everyone from now on. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. So you have to keep the covenant now. And what is that? What is the stipulation now for keeping this covenant? That's the question that arises. Verse 10. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Notice how he answers our questions immediately. Every male among you shall be circumcised. That's the covenant. The covenant is embodied in the sign and the seal of the righteousness of faith. That, by the way, if you want the reference for that, is Romans 4.11. Abraham believed God, excuse me, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. You see, his faith is being embodied in this, in this sacrament now so that the whole covenant can be symbolized in this circumcision sacrament. And it conveys to him and his descendants this promissory oath that God has made This in chapter 15 so that they accept it and they are to keep it. They are to observe this sacrament. Now let me pause and make two points real quickly. First, this is my covenant with you and your descendants, the covenant you are to keep, circumcision. It's interesting, that formula, because that's what's picked up by Jesus. This is my blood of the covenant, this cup. So Jesus uses the same way of talking about the covenant. The covenant can be symbolized by the sacramental sign and seal. So when he says, this is my blood of the covenant, it's really the same way of speaking about this covenant. This is my covenant, circumcision. And so you see the sacrament is closely identified with the covenant. This is why in covenant theology, sacraments are seen as covenant signs and seals, specifically related to covenant. So I just wanted to point that out. This, you see this same way of speaking of sacraments later. Now, not all the descendants are guaranteed the eternal benefits of this covenant because of Esau. We'll get to that later. The descendants after Abraham are not guaranteed eternal life. So this sacramental sign and seal is given to all the seed of Abraham, even the non-elect. And this, of course, is why we baptize even our infants, some of whom may be non-elect. So those are the two points to keep in mind just very briefly. Maybe a third thing to keep in mind is notice how important keeping this sacramental sign and seal is to God. He says, if you don't do it, you're breaking my covenant. This is what you are to keep. This is a stipulation, you see. You have to do this. Now, be careful here because this isn't a way of earning the righteousness this is what the Jews were confused about and Paul so carefully and in great length refutes them. Circumcision was not a meritorious work that earned one favor with God. God doesn't intend it that way. But it is an expression of faith and living faith and it's an act of obedience to God's requirement. And in, re in faith we respond in obedience and carry out God's wishes. And those are two very different things to keep separate. Okay? And I'm, I'm not, I think you will, and I don't doubt that you will, but I just want to make sure you hear that from me uh, as many times as needed. But I'd also suggest that um, those uh, forms of Christianity that so spiritualize, thinking particularly of the... Uh, the 
Foxites, the Quakers, who don't practice either baptism or the Lord's Supper. They so spiritualize it that it does, they don't practice these things. I believe they're disobeying the Lord and not keeping his requirements. And I don't think it's well to do that. I don't think it's safe or, or, or wise. Because God gives these things to us for our good. And as an expression of our faith, we do it. So now verse 11. Those are my little excuses on those points. Now verse 11. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice how it's so closely tied to this covenant. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Now notice that, extending to his whole household. When we get to baptism, we'll ask the question of what was the constitution of the households in the New Testament age? We're going to find it was the same. Slaves, freedmen, as well as children. And I believe they would have been baptized. I'll make that case later. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. You see, circumcision is the covenant in their flesh now. They bear the mark of God's ownerships, God's ownership. So when they see circumcision, it is a declaration. God is my God, and I am his, of an Israelite. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off. There's a pun there, circumcision and cutting off. Will be cut off in the flesh. Will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And read Exodus 4, 24 and 25 sometime. The Lord was determined to put Moses to death because he had not circumcised his son. Interesting. So you see, taking on this sign and seal was a declaration of faith and was an expression of faith that God demanded. You will receive circumcision, and you will do this. If you don't, you have broken my covenant. This is the stipulation. But friends, it's a stipulation of living faith rather than earning the benefits of the covenant. It's an expression of faith, receiving the benefits of the covenant by faith along with believing Abraham. Question. John. No, I understand it. I'm, I've never known anybody to interpret this as a works imperative, so I'm trying to think how to respond. Yes. The imperative here is expressed that they have to individually do this. But what they have to do is not merit the reward. The reward has already been promised. I think you have to interpret 17 in light of 15 of Genesis. The reward has already been guaranteed by God's oath. And he himself took upon himself the burden of guaranteeing the benefits. Because when you look at chapter 17, the benefits that are expressed there are the same that God already guaranteed by his oath. So the only way I can understand to interpret this, and later Revelation confirms it, you know, circumcise your hearts, which is a way of expressing, you know, believe, accept in faith and understand uh, that, as well as the Pauline interpretation. The uh, acceptance of circumcision and carrying out this duty is an act of faith in God's oath that he's taken. 
what makes that work is seeing that the covenant here in 17 is the same covenant he already inaugurated and confirmed by his own oath and his own taking upon himself the obligation to fulfill it. So that God guarantees it. It's already guaranteed to Abraham. By, by performing the sign and seal, it's merely an expression of faith in that promise already given. But it requires seeing both together and understanding in that light. Because when you say, if you were to say that this is a work, what you're really saying is this is a personal obligation to fulfill which is meritorious and earns God's favor. In Romans 4, of course, Paul deals with that. To Abraham, who didn't work, the blessing of grace was given because he believed. And I think you have interpreted also in light of the fact that Abraham was already justified. It was reckoned to him as righteousness even before the covenant was uh, carried further. So that would be my quick response. Alan. In the garden, Adam and Eve. Well, I would say Adam and Eve were the church as the people of God because God was their God and they were his people. Could you elaborate a little more, though, on the significance of the Abrahamic covenant for the formation uh, and understanding of the visible church? And that actually might tie in a little bit to what John, uh, the question that John raised. Now, the question is elaborating on how the Abrahamic covenant advances our understanding of the church being formed. I, I think the, uh, if I understand your question and you're helping me direct my answer as well, which I appreciate, um, the, the answer should be formulated as what God is doing is narrowing a people of God out of the world that are his specifically. He makes the promise which he gives to all of his people throughout the eras of all of his covenanting. I will be your God, you will be my people as a collective. That includes people who are not necessarily elect. And the church visible consists of all believers and their children, all who profess Christ and their children. Uh, and that's what he's establishing here. He's really inaugurating that aspect of the church which, which identifies a particular people in the world signed and sealed with the, with the uh, circumcision as his peculiar possession and gives them, by administering the covenant, he gives them the sacramental sign and seal. It's an administration of the covenant, as it were. That's the distinction we make. That's the quick answer. Uh, when you look at the New Testament church, it is exactly the same phenomenon, except that Gentiles are brought in as seed of Abraham. We saw that in Galatians 3. We're not brought in as foreign families and disconnected from Abraham. Just the opposite. Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to promise. So, the New Testament connects to the Abrahamic directly. He's, he's inaugurating it here. He's pre-preaching the gospel, as we saw earlier. And he's initiating what he will fulfill in the seed to come, Christ, and in, in fuller flowering, calling all the nations into this same Abrahamic family. You see, it's the same Abrahamic family, but it consists of all those who profess faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile, and their children. And it is important to see that this sacramental sign and seal is issued to the children. God is dealing with uh, Abraham in this way on purpose. And in fact, I think when you look throughout Scripture, God consistently deals with families, not atomistically with only individuals. Rahab was delivered out of Jericho with whom? 
whole father's household. Uh, Lot was rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah along with his family, those who would come, but there was an offer to his uh, to all of his family to be rescued out of Noah and his family, including Ham, who sinned against the Lord and we and was revealed that he was a gross sinner and his son Canaan fell under a curse of God. He was not elect, as far as we can tell. And yet he received the uh, external deliverance. So God deals consistently with families. And my arguing against uh, believer baptism is, when did he tell us to stop doing that, basically? God, God does this all the time. And he's founding the way we should always act in the church here in Abraham he's really beginning our ecclesiastical understanding and I think I think that's helpful to think of it that way so that if we were if he were to demand a change and, and to tell us well no longer are your children included as my my children uh, we would we would have to demand explicit teaching of scripture to warrant that kind of radical reorientation of God's way of dealing with us see the point of that we would need explicit teaching of scripture and what we have instead in, in the New Testament is consistently teaching of scripture which suggests very clearly by implication good and necessary inference that we are to deal the same way as we did with Abraham believers those who profess faith along with their children Well, there's an awful lot more to say about all this. I mean, <laughs> this is just a sketch the whole uh, the whole time, but it gets you uh, thinking about the Abrahamic. So let's close with prayer. Almighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us these wonderful promises through Abraham that we Gentiles, at least most of us here, are participants in this great grace that you will be our God and we are your children. We thank you for these great truths and we do hope you'll bless us in them that we may grow in them and teach them to our children that they may love these truths as well as we do for they are really wonderful to us, O Lord. And this is the anchor of our, our soul and our hope through Jesus Christ who himself is our Lord. Amen.